Hello, podcast listeners. You're listening to a Ricochet podcast. That's a production of Ricochet.com. A lot of you don't know what Ricochet.com is, so I'm going to ask you a favor. Please go to Ricochet.com on the interwebs and check us out. We are the fastest-growing, most civil, witty, interesting conversation between and among the center-right in America and across the globe. We've got some great contributors like Peter Robinson and Paul Ray and Pat Sajak and Rick Wilson, et cetera, et cetera. We also have some fantastic members from all over the place, and they mix it up every day on our member feed and our main feed. We also have a Lord knows tons of podcasts we'd like you to listen to. It only works if you join and become a member and join this fast-moving group that is slowly changing the country for the better. So go to ricochet.com and join today. Hello and welcome to the, uh, we don't even have a name for this podcast. People are calling it the Glop Podcast for Goldberg Long Fedora's Podcast. It is the podcast from ricochet.com. With Rob Long, that's me from sunny Southern California, Jonah Goldberg, and John Fedoritz back east. It is Friday, October 12th, the day after the first uh, first and only vice presidential debate, a few days before the second and crucial presidential debate. This is coming to you from Ricochet.com, the fastest growing, smartest, most uh, civil and witty conversation on the web between and among the center right. Today's show is brought to you by two wonderful sponsors. The first is Hillsdale College's online course, Constitution 201. It's online, it's free, and it's on the threat of the progressive movement and what constitutional conservatives must do to restore liberty and limited government. We'll be talking about this a bit more in the a bit later on the show, but in the meantime, if you'd like, go to hillsdale.edu and then click on Constitution 201, which is a banner on the right side of the page, and sign up. It is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals for a free audiobook of your choice. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash GPL. That's GPL as in Goldberg, but or it's long. On the line with me, as always, is Jonah Goldberg in Washington D.C. Jonah, how are you? Hello, I am. Um, I'm. I'm alive. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm good. Uh, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm a bit under the weather. Um, so if, I hear. If you hear a priest come in and start screaming, "The power of Christ compels you!" as I spin <laughs> around in my chair, uh, you should know why. Um, because well, I, I think we know why anyway. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of in pea soup mode. Um, but no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm here and I'm in Washington and, uh, that's about all I got for you. Okay. So, uh, so we're, we're talking about a certain amount of distress. Did this, did this distress predate the, uh, vice presidential debate or was it brought on by, uh, alleged <coughs> Joe Biden? Well, um, you know, Orwell says that a man can be a failure and be driven to drink and become all the more a failure by, by his drinking. Um, the <laughs> debates, only exacerbated my gastrointestinal distress. Um, it was a pretty unpleasant thing, but it predates the, the debate. Okay, all right. And also on the line with us is John Fedoritz from New York City. John, how are you? What a load of malarkey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God love you. That's my just friend. a load of malarkey. Uh, all right, well, let's get right to it. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this debate because I think by the time people hear this, even you know by the next day, it's been kind of completely uh, old news. But I mean, I was watching it with a fairly right wing crowd at Manhattan Institute event, 
And it was pretty silent. And I think a lot of people thought, ah, oh, you know, Joe Biden's kind of kicking this guy's butt. And I think he did for the first 25, 30 minutes. But then suddenly it looked like Joe Biden got a signal from off screen or off stage saying, dude, calm down. And, uh, and it's like somebody unplugged him. And I thought uh, actually Ryan had a very effective, uh, you know, remaining quarter of an hour, 20 minutes. What do you think? I, I think that um, in the immediate aftermath of the debate, it was very easy to say that Biden had done what Biden was supposed to do, which was give a little bit of um, a zing and a boost to Democrats and liberals who have been in nothing less than meltdown mode, uh, you know, for uh, since the first debate between uh, President Obama and Mitt Romney. Um, then literally as the seconds passed, it started to become clear that this debate might be the gift that kept on giving to the Romney-Ryan ticket because what was memorable about it and what will be noted about it as the days pass on Facebook and on Twitter and in your email box uh, will be um, GIFs and YouTubes and uh, audio clips of Biden's expressions, his scornful laughter, his weird interruptions. Um, and that, you know, I think what we have here is something that started out looking like a success and will seem over the course of the week that followed it to yeah. have been a terrible failure. Because if what what is remembered is the weird, rude, boorish uh, an odd behavior of one of the two people in the debate. That is not good for the one who was the rude boar. No. Jonah, and that was Biden. Did you feel uh, uh, a zing and a push and a lift for um, for uh, Biden at all? Uh, I, I think – I mean I think John's right that it, 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 it definitely um, calmed the panic on the left. You know, as, as Yuval Levin put it on NRO um, – the left needed the the MSNBC crowd needed somebody to be a jerk to Paul Ryan's face, and that's what Biden did. And it seems to me the problem, though, is that that that's all fine and good. And I guess Biden needed to shore up those that that crowd, but he's left with the problem that if you're a middle of the road or undecided yeah. voter, uh, you're completely turned off by the guy. And moreover, I mean, what is the one thing that Saturday Night Live is going to get out of this? Right. I mean, it sort of goes to John's point about YouTube clips and gifts and all the rest is, you know, they may make fun of Ryan for being too quiet or too reticent or too boyish looking or whatever. But they're going to make, you know, uh, Biden seem like the really creepy guy who sits next to you on the bus, even though there are a lot of other NPCs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he made a lot of people feel unsafe. He was a creepy <laughs> dude. <laughs> it's true. Well, you know, there's always that guy, you know, when you walk into the men's room and there's a whole line of urinals and you go to one and then a guy comes in and goes to one right next to yours. Yeah, he's that guy. Yeah, he's that guy. He's that guy. Listen, and, um, <laughs> I, you know, not to get into not to get into, you know, painful issues of actual substance. Uh, you know, which, Wait a minute. Which, 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 I, which I know, which I know, I think really lowers the tone of this <laughs> podcast. But uh, Biden uh, did something uh, really quite destructive to uh, to his cause. Uh, again, something that is like a, a like a slow acting poison, or you know, or like a time bomb. 
when he uh, said that as far as he knew and as far as the White House knew, uh, that no requests for enhanced security had been made uh, uh, for the uh, consulate in, in Benghazi, um, despite the fact that the day before he spoke, uh, there was a four-hour hearing in front of the, the House of Representatives in which the two uh, leading security officials said <clears throat> that over the months they had begged and pleaded and beseeched for um, for for such enhanced security and had been denied actually by the two people who were sitting at the table next to them, the two State Department officials who were sitting there. Uh, the day that followed, the day which is the day that we're taping this, um, uh, White House Press Secretary Jay Carney, who is a uh, who is a, an old friend of mine, I have to say, uh, gave what what may stand in the annals of press spokesmanship as one of the most uh, remarkable uh, uh, self defense quotes ever given yeah. by a press secretary over the White House when he said that I'm, I'm looking for the quote directly right now, but basically um, he said that Biden was speaking for himself and the president and the White House, but not for the administration. <laughs> so, yeah. this, is, this is a direct quote. So yeah, yeah. the vice president of the United States speaking on behalf of the president of the United States was not, however, speaking on behalf of the administration, meaning that uh, as you as you parse it, that um, they were not told by Hillary Clinton right. that there was right. a need for this security. Uh, this is a very uh, very dangerous buzzsaw that Joe Biden turned on. That will that the president is going to have to face on Tuesday when his second debate takes place. Because there is a clear, right. deliberate, and incredibly blatant contradiction here between what was known and what happened. And we're not now even talking about whether they told the truth about the YouTube video and the demonstration and all, all that. that stuff. We're now literally talking about the question of whether or not the whether or not the president wants to claim that the behavior of his own administration is separate from him. Jonah – he, he can somehow avoid responsibility right. for um, lack security that helped get uh, our, uh, an ambassador, ambassador killed for the first time since 1979. J Jonah, if you're Mitt Romney, is this, is this, is this uh, fertile ground? Do you, do you tear into this, like you know, tear into the soft underbelly of the Obama administration with a claw-like hook? Is this, is, this, is this when you go for it? You know, I, I don't think so. I mean I, it, the one thing we've sort of learned from this Libya stuff is that um, – when Romney presses it, the press backs off, and you know the the there's this funny irony, you know, that so much of Obama's foreign policy for the last up until he killed Bin Laden was simply to keep foreign policy out of the headlines. Um, certainly, for his first two years, it was this idea to put it all on the back burner. He's going to do things quietly, no drama, and um, and then. Because he had these ostensible successes in foreign policy, they're going to start bragging about foreign policy. And what's amazing is they almost made it to the finish line where either one of those strategies would have worked. And then this thing blew up in their face. And it seems like the press has finally found something that they're interested in. And the one thing that Romney – I think Romney could be, needs to be very careful about not getting in the press's way. 
I'm um, not sure. I, I'm not sure. I agree with that. You know, there was a a, a story in um, uh, in the New York Times, uh, first in Politico and now the public editor of the New York Times, that there was a real question. There was no major story in the New York Times the day after the House hearing on the security lapse in Benghazi, and the. Uh, managing editor and executive editor of the New York Times both said that they didn't think that there had been anything new in the hearing, mm-hmm. a hearing in which two security officials said that for months they had begged right, for right. more security in Benghazi and had been told that they were asking for the sun, the moon, and the stars. And they were sitting at a table with the two officials who had denied their request. So I would just say that the notion that the press is going after this aggressively when the major media institution in the United States announced you know, bald-facedly that there was no new news in a four-hour House hearing that made major news indicates that it is not the case that the press is aggressive. A couple of people are being wonderfully aggressive. Eli Lake mm-hmm. in The Daily Beast is. James Rosen at Fox News is. Even Anderson Cooper is at CNN, but not the New York Times, not the Washington Post, which was doing some good reporting, backed off. It is a very strange moment. And, you know, the New York Times is basically an adjunct arm of the Democratic Party. It is not going to aggressively report on something that might damage the president's reelection efforts. And remember, this debate tomorrow night, if in fact this is people are hearing this on Monday, uh, is a town hall meeting, which means that their questions are going to come from the audience. There will be a question on Libya. I mean, there will be, and Romney is going to have to address it. So uh, he might as well address it honestly, as opposed to you know, as opposed to imagining that the slack is going to be picked up by, yeah, I'm, by I'm the mainstream say- media. I'm not saying you should duck the question. I'm just saying that if he tries, you know, I mean, look, Lord knows, I've been beating up on Stu Stevens and this. Let's just passively make it a referendum on Obama and on the economy strategy. But it just seems to me that that if you if they if they try to get way out ahead of the press, I don't I don't have a problem with them keeping helping to keep the story alive by mentioning it and talking about it and asking pointed questions. But I don't think you know that they should try to turn this into a, a spend well, yeah. sort of turn it into the message of the week. Well, them. if you can't, well, they, no, of course, this, this, this campaign hasn't had a message of the week ever. But if yeah. you if you're going to do it, you got to you got to boil it down to two or three sentences. So I understand what you're trying to say. That's that's that, that's the challenge. If they're going to go for it, that they're going to have to go for it in a way that is simple and declarative. Uh, they asked for more security. They didn't get it. An ambassador was killed. We had an ambassador murdered uh, overseas, and then they lied about it. And it has to be sort of. I think you have to be as direct as that, especially in the town hall kind of thing, because. You know the questions are going to be you, you, these town hall these town hall <laughs> events are disasters for Republicans. They never work for us, um, and I, I don't think there's going to be a really a very deep or detailed question about Libya. I mean, I just I can't imagine that 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 well, maybe you know there will probably be one somebody trying to be smart, but there will be one. I mean, if you're okay, so you're Obama now, and you're you're looking at a map, and it's gotten a lot tighter, a, a lot tighter in Florida. Uh, tighter in Colorado, tighter where you need it to be looser. What do you do? What, what, what's the next thing you do? I mean, it it it, it 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 feels to me like 
the strangest th- – I mean we've always talked about how these things go on too long, right? Uh, it starts uh, starts a year ago and then we have these long primaries and then we have this sort of these conventions and then it's still 90 days before you get to the actual uh, – uh, or, 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 or 30 – 60 days before you get to the actual election. It doesn't feel like these guys have been kind of just goofing off for part of it. Like now suddenly we're starting to have a campaign. Two no, weeks I think – no, I think we learned something very important and interesting, and it will be interesting to see if the lesson is learned in future presidential campaigns, which is that between you know uh, the beginning of this year and and the beginning of October, something like five six hundred million dollars was spent, and all of it was wasted because once those two guys got on stage together, the race began in earnest. It was as though it was zero zero. And, you know, we knew 45% of the public is going to vote Democrat, 45% is going to vote Republican. And all that spending to caricature Mitt Romney, to do this, to do that, to broaden the map, push to get get Ohio, you know, out of reach and all of that, it ended up making a lot of money for television stations. It ended up making a lot of money for media bookers. It ended up making a lot of money for people who make commercials. And And it turns out that it was a giant waste it was as though they took a match and set, um, you know, set fire to five, six hundred million dollars. And this is going to be a very interesting question now about how you proceed. If one debate, one single debate after, you know, 14 months, granted, it was a remarkable debate and, went and it had a yeah, you know, very a clear plan. winner and all that. But that doesn't matter. I really don't think that matters. I think the presumption that clearly – Obama's support was soft enough that one decisive 90-minute moment flipped the dynamic of the race, which means there was no dynamic of the race before. But the Joe, dynamic it, wasn't real. It was a, that, it was a shadow yeah. game. But and that, that basically, we're, basically we are a European country. It's a six-week race to the presidency. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's a six-week race. It's a six-week right. election cycle yeah. that, that's been expanded to a year money. and a half to, to enrich – <laughs> the political and media class. Uh, J- Jonah, the public uh, is not participating in it. Is that money? Was that money wasted? Um, I, or is, I, or, let's wait. Isn't that money always wasted? I, I don't know. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom is that Clinton didn't waste his money by running those ads really early in the summer of, of what was it, 95 or 96. Um, and I think, you know, how much worse off would Obama be if he hadn't been running those ads in Ohio and Florida, if they were lagging behind, but the, this this raises something that I think is one of the one of the lovelier, and I wish there was the right German word for it, because Schadenfreude really doesn't completely capture it. Um, if that first debate with Obama and and Romney, if that first debate really did sort of lose the election for um, Obama, which is you know possible. Um, that seems to be the trend right now. And who knows? Lots of things can happen. Lifetime in politics, yada, yada, yada. But the amazing thing about it is that it will be entirely Barack Obama's fault. Yes. Right? I mean, this won't be a bad strategy. It won't be the underlying fundamentals. It won't be any of these things. It'll be because this guy had such contempt for his opponent, who was so arrogant, who had such uh, overconfidence in his own ability. (laughs) Remember, he left his debate thinking he won. Yeah, no, um, that, that that was astonishing to me. You walk yeah. out and hey, fellas, where's the cake? <laughs> and, I think there is a know, German word for it. I think it's a uh, uh, Farfenschadenfenugen. But that's <laughs> an amazing thing, you know, to, to have this whole thing 
you know these these incredibly sophisticated computer models and ad wires yeah. and all that boil down to a guy thinking that he could phone it in during a debate and blow it and um and you know if he is voted out of office he gets to go into his retirement and he will know that he he lost the election none of his handlers not his strategist uh-huh. well, he lost Okay, wait. Oh, oh he'll I, never I, I know. Wanna, hey, he'll I, never wait, know. wait, wait, John. I want to come back to this because that that <laughs> that's okay. that's fighting words. But before I do, I do want to remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than one hundred thousand downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers, including uh, the bestseller, the New York Times bestseller, uh, two years from now, my story, my side of the story, the Barack Obama autobiography, um, for. Our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service, which I use. It's excellent. One audiobook to consider is, from my perspective, 50 Things Liberals Love to Hate by Mike Gallagher. He's a very funny uh, radio talk show host, great voice, very funny guy. The book is very, very funny, and he he, he reads it himself, and it's um, it's a nice uh, kind of great, delicious, evil uh, uh, laugh, and I, I know you'll enjoy it. Um, so if, for that free audiobook or one of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash GPL. That's audiblepodcast.com slash GPL. John, Jonah, you got a book pick for, the, for our listeners? I got one for you. Um, I think if you want to read one, if you want to get one uh, free, uh, remarkable book that will uh, give you uh, a sense of everything that you need to know about what it means to be a conservative and what makes a conservative, you should download Intellectuals by Paul Johnson, a book published um, about 15 years ago that is a portrait of, of the perversion of the intellectual class and the creation of an intellectual elite uh, that exists to believe itself to be superior to, uh, higher than, and more important than uh, the mass of people that they supposedly care so much about. It's a great book. It's a very provocative book, um, and uh, that's the one that I would uh, I would start with. Um, I, I actually love Intellectuals by Paul Johnson. Uh, it's a great book. I agree entirely. Um, but um, the one I would recommend is the one is another one that is read by its author. And it will make you laugh. It'll make you cry. It'll make you think. It'll make you question your place in the universe. And that's the tyranny of cliches by Jonah Goldberg. Um, I uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, look seriously. No, it you're was, right. You're right. Can it, I just interrupt you for a minute and sure. say instead of having you have to sadly and humiliatingly shill your own book <laughs> in what is what is surely one of the most pathetic things ever to 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 to, to uh, go across the bandwidth of ricochet.com it is an excellent book you read it very well and um i would recommend that people uh, uh i would recommend that people download it and then also buy a copy so that you can always keep up with where you are so you can listen to some of it in the car and then you can read some of it at, yeah uh, and wh- uh, while you're in the car Read the book and listen to the <laughs> while you're in the car, and text some of your favorite passages and yeah. tweet the page numbers. Tweet them, yeah, while you're on the 405, I think that would be really. I, that's my my record. Or or I 95 somewhere between Washington and New York. Somewhere with lots of at, construction. At four o'clock on a yeah. on a on a Thursday. That well, I was I, I was going to say though. I mean, just to justify <laughs> the incredible pain in the ass it was to read that book. Um, it would be nice to sell some copies of, of the Audible version. I got a lot of people say thank you so much. I, I hadn't realized how much audiobook listeners want the author to read the book themselves. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's a huge thing. And 
Um, um, and but it was it was one of the hardest things I've had to do in sort of my pundit life. Seriously, really? Is that true? Yeah. Why? Why? It well, seemed like a natural. Well, first of all, the rules about reading a book are so much different. You know, it's it's not like you speech where you just have notes and you sort of you know you have these set pieces that you extemporanea extemporize on and all that. You have to read the book exactly how it's written, and it made me realize how much like German or French phrases and names in there I didn't know how to pronounce were in there and that kind of stuff. <laughs> and and you have to read it exactly right. If you mumble anything, if you use the wrong word, if you use the wrong tense, any of that stuff, they come back at you with it. And so like I – it took me I think five days in studio, eight-hour days to read that thing. Keep in mind, Are like, you a normal, kidding me? A normal speech is like 2,500 words. A normal book is like 100,000 words. So just think about how much longer it takes to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. And then – so you, you, you send off the tracks and then the – the company comes back at you with, I think I had 800 fixes I had to do. And some of them were the most nickel and dime things you can imagine. I, I think that's a lot of fixes. And um, I think that's well, too many fixes. Now, I was drunk for a lot of the reading. So I mean, <laughs> well, that might have been part of it. But it was, it was next time. Next time be drunk for the writing. That would, do, you, do you think, okay, do you think that you're going to write differently um, your next book knowing in, your, in that experience in your mind? Do you think that you'll, you'll, I mean, I, mean I, I actually feel like books like that probably not quite as 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 um, deeply researched and annotated as your book, but certainly there are a lot of books out there that are uh, you know my you know aren't aren't drowning in footnotes, and I I suspect that a lot of those books will eventually become go straight to Audible before they go to text because people you know people want to hear them they want to they want to they want to they want to be getting information as they're moving around their during their day. I mean I, I know I I do. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll make me think twice about it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not chomping at the bit to write another book to begin with, but um, it was just hard, you know, but one of the reasons I agreed to but, do But, you know, the good part is, I do have to say, the good part is that now that Jonah has mastered the form, I, I understand that he has been asked to read 50, <laughs> 50 Shades of Grey for, for the, for the uh, audio book. So everybody, everybody who, who yeah. really wants to hear, you know, about how a relationship can be deepened through the use of dominance and submission. I think Jonah's voice will really carry this yeah, in a yeah. whole new way to audiences across the across the globe. I mean, my, the, the timbre of my voice, the mellifluosity of my voice to say phrases like butt plug is really what people need. Um, <laughs> Listen, as long as you're not acting it out, <laughs> uh, I will. <laughs> I would like to hear it, but I don't want to. Yeah. Uh, right, wait. Wait. So let's 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 save ourselves from. Let's uh, let's just pretend that didn't happen. Let's just, let's just save ourselves. I, I do want to go back to this one thing that Jonah said, which is this ludicrous assertion, which I, I, I can only assume you said because it's after lunch and you had a martini at lunch. Do, it, it, just assume for a minute our our our, our most joyful fantasies come true. And in fact, you're looking at him. I mean, I keep looking at Larry Sabato's map, which is not the most um, optimistic map for for Republicans, but has in it the ring of truth. This thing is winnable, but it might be winnable on a large scale. And just assume for a minute that Mitt Romney wins a decisive thumping victory and Barack Obama is sent back to Harvard, where I'm sure he'll be a tenured professor 
and he sits there and he t- teaches his, you know, bitterly teaches his constitutional law class or whatever it is he's going to do, uh, and plots his return uh, to government. Is there what is the what, what are the what's the likelihood on a scale of one to one hundred, John? One being uh, not at all likely, one hundred being totally uh, definitely going to happen. That Barack Obama is going to sit there at some point in the next you know eighteen months after his total drubbing and say to himself, you know, maybe I was the problem. I would say negative infinity, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Uh, Negative negative infinity because I think, you know, uh, his his vision of America as being a world of uh, desperate, uh, bitter, clinger, stupid white people uh, who hold on to guns and religion instead of expecting, you know, the government to come in and and give them and just hand them everything on a silver platter – will be fulfilled uh, by a defeat. And, of course, there's also the racial element and everything like that. Now, I want to point one important thing out that I don't think has been discussed, and I know we don't, you know, it's not really our business and everything like that. But um, on uh, the other night, uh, Diane Sawyer sat down with the president for an interview, and she said to him in her Diane Sawyer way, what was it like when you came off stage and you saw Michelle? (laughs) what did Michelle say to you? And the president said, well, Michelle is uh, is my closest advisor and my harshest critic. Now, how long is that marriage going to last if he loses? (laughs) I mean, if I, if I on national television described my wife as my harshest critic. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I understand, I understand that I've just crossed some kind of a line and I'm not allowed to say such things and all of that. But, um, it was like the moment in the debate when he seemed completely incapable of even using the word sweetie, uh, with any kind of credibility when he, uh, when he made his statement about how 20 years ago, uh, Michelle made me the happiest man on earth. Happy anniversary, uh, sweetie. Um, it was a very strange moment. Uh, I I don't know uh, that it made me comfortable uh, about the domestic harmony inside the White House, a place which, of course, notable for a uh, history of having a lack of true domestic harmony, so there would be nothing new in that, but um, – that's what I would be interested in the post-Obama uh, uh, presidency life, uh, just from a you know strictly uh, reality TV show. Uh, Is that uh, do you feel the same way, Jonah? Um, I, you know, I I don't know. I, I've just never been too fascinated by their marriage. Although I mean, I think John is right that there she is. She has always let go of these little mm-hmm. shots at him that made it very clear that that while she wants Americans to worship barack obama she doesn't <laughs> yeah right you know some, remember she had that stuff about how he's stinky um or he's <laughs> he makes a lot of noise when he's sleep when he's all of this like you know i mean what the famous line no man is a is a hero to his valet dog, um yeah. there's a there's a certain part of that to their relationship that comes through um but i, I don't know i mean my guess is that their their marriage is better chances to be a real working marriage than Bill Clinton's. 
you know, um, and that's a really ah, low but bar. That, that that would be your mistake because Bill Clinton, Bill and Hillary clearly have some kind of a very uh, yeah very complicated bond, and I'm saying that you know listening to Barack Obama talk about his wife is not watching what bill clinton did to his wife was not was not comforting and i'm sure barack obama is a, a much better man you know not that it would be that hard to be a better man than bill clinton but uh you know morally and personally and spiritually but uh a much better man a much more serious person a much more responsible person but um there is something very discomforting about the way that he that that he talks about her and you're talking about the way she talks about him and i'm more interested in the way he talks about her um it's just very uh, discomforting weird it's weird yeah it's not it's not the way a loving person talks about somebody that he's loving toward mm mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, uh, are we? I mean, are how we, would you um, describe your wife? Well, she's my harshest critic. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. You do make a point there. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's your wife. Your wife is not supposed to be the one walking, you know, behind you, whispering in your ear, "Caesar, thou art mortal." That's supposed to be your slave, not your wife. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I don't know. I mean, your wife can also be your reality check, right? You know, I mean, could be the person who tells you the things you need to hear. Um, <clears throat> I agree with you that the first word, the first descriptor out of my mouth would not be my art. You know, Jessica's my harshest critic, but um, you know, somewhere in a, in a list of adjectives after a lot more favorable ones would be the phrase. You know, she's probably my most honest critic. You know, yes. However, it, that would be after a list. Th- yeah. th- no, that's where I agree with you, right? I mean, the first words that come out of my mouth would not be my, she's my harshest critic. But it would be yeah, you know, it's a, love it's, of my life or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know? Right. <laughs> you know? But is that actually the, the, the I mean, isn't that, is that really what you want? I mean, I'm, I say this as somebody who's not married, but I, I can't think of like, you know what I love about my wife the most is that she really, she's the most honest with me. Like, you know what? Uh, don't, don't be honest with me. <laughs> Tell me I'm smart and I'm great and my book is the best book ever and I haven't I, – and the extra 30 pounds or whatever it is I just gained is not, still makes me wonder. No, I, I don't need another person in my life <laughs> you know, identifying the areas in which I don't measure up. And that's why you're not married. <laughs> that may be Ladies true. and gentlemen. <laughs> the mystery song. I don't, I don't want to somehow contradict what I said before, but, you know, but the, that is, uh, you know, like I say, you also, you'd also, you also don't have a wife to simply stand by and whisper sweet nothings in your ear. It's just a question of what the balance is and whether the, whether the, yeah. loving, whether the loving behavior outstrips the critical behavior. And if, and I I think most marriage counselors would say uh, <laughs> listening to somebody's description of his wife as my harshest critic that that marriage needs some work. Well, uh, are we are we whistling uh, past the graveyard or uh, or are we counting our chickens to think that soon they'll have more time to work on that? I mean, I, you know, I'm looking at this map. I keep looking at the map and I keep hitting refresh thinking that maybe it'll change. It still looks like a real battle uh, in which the favorite is still Barack Obama, or am I just once again languishing? No, 
if the election were held today, I think Obama wins. But if you look at the the sort of the direction that things are moving, they're moving in Romney's direction. And you know, remember, look by definition, the late decided, the late deciders, and the undecided decide in October, right, or the first four days of November, because that's when that, that then the clock runs out on being undecided. And you know, this is a point that John made in a previous podcast that. For a lot of people, <clears throat> tens of millions of people, that debate with Romney was the first time that they'd ever heard him speak at any length on his own behalf because they didn't they, – they certainly didn't watch the Republican debates right. in the primaries and they didn't watch the convention. And there's really no substitute for that unmediated direct appeal to voters and um, – Yes. Side-by-side side comparison, too. Yeah, and I, I just think – at first I thought people were overreacting to the importance of that first debate. But when you think about how it messed up the whole pacing of the Obama campaign, um, it really it, – it's almost hard to exaggerate how important it was. Sean Trent had a fantastic piece at Real Clear Politics where he makes this point that a lot of us have been talking around for a long time, but he really sort of hammers home um, about how the Obama campaign has always worked assiduously – to, to make itself seem inevitable, right? Um, they worked the refs on the polls. They would always change the subject in a way that, that made it seem whenever they ran into trouble as quickly as possible. They always, the whole appeal of it was we'll get on the right side of history. We're going to win anyway. Um, and there's a, there's a funny dynamic is that when you're ahead in the polls, when it looks like you're going to win, you can get away with doing really nasty pathetic things and it seems like just what winners do but when you're behind the same sort of nasty and pathetic crap seems desperate and so you know when when obama was ahead and he did his um you know when they, and they did the whole you know romney gave this woman cancer nonsense and all of that um it seemed like well that's just what tough competitors do you know and they're putting away the race when they came out with this big bird thing it just seemed pathetic and, and desperate. And I, I think that there, the Obama campaign doesn't know how to position itself as the underdog. They like to talk about themselves as right. the underdog sometimes, mostly in the past tense. But they're never really – you know, they, 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 they don't have a sort of comeback strategy from this, this, this place that they're in. Listen, I, I think that that map that you are looking at um, uh, lags – what's happening even though it has shown some mm -hmm. changes um i mean if you went two weeks ago uh two weeks before you were looking at it and till now what you would see is florida flipping it appears virginia is flipping uh, uh wisconsin has moved from as they say lean obama to toss-up michigan is going to move into toss-up category that is a state that seemed beyond reach. And the most astonishing thing is that Pennsylvania, which I think everybody, including the Romney campaign, believed was probably out of reach, is now in toss-up margin of error territory, according to polls, which I'm suspicious of, but I'm suspicious of because I think they oversample Democrats. Yeah. So if they're still oversampling Democrats, uh, that's an argument against interest. That means that it's going, you know, this is all going in Romney's direction. This is 
if you think that the incumbent president is going to be voted out, the vote out is going to be a national wave. It is not going to be a state by state mm-hmm. victory. You know, it's not going to be a state by state thing, sort of like 2000 between you know, Gore and Bush when it was a sort of toss up. They weren't they weren't that far apart ideologically. One was a you know running as a squishy Republican, the other was sort of like a right wing Democrat who moved to the left. And, you know, they were – it was kind of a gimme. Well, I could vote for this one. I could vote for that one. Oh, look, he got – he had a DUI when he was, you know, 30 right, years ago. I right. guess I'll vote for the other guy. If you're going to vote out the incumbent, the wave is going to be national. In other words, this whole thing about, oh, he Obama's going to build a wall in Ohio. Ohio, Ohio is going to build a wall in Ohio. If Romney is going to win Ohio if he wins because he's going to win a lot of places like Ohio because it's a right. national – turn against the president and it therefore makes sense that if he wins Ohio, he may win Pennsylvania. He will certainly win Virginia. And I think that what we're seeing, I mean, you know, there's no way, there's no way to know because there's, you know, four weeks to go or three and a half weeks to go and there are two more debates and all of this. But, you know, momentum is a real thing in politics. It's a huge thing. Um, and the closer you are to the election, if you have momentum, the harder it is to reverse. You know, yeah. it's like a, it literally is like a hill going down. And r- roundabout, you know, when the conventions end at the beginning of September or whatever, is like that's when the stone, you know, the Sisyphean stone starts rolling down the hill and it picks up steam. And then the question is, you know, is it going to be diverted off into this track or into the other track? And getting it off a track and onto the other track is very difficult. That debate was either the game changer or it was the revelation of the hollowness of the Obama support, which I think was Sean Trendy's point that, mm. Just, that Jonah think, is going to. That that yeah. Can, can we can we get we'll get, get back to this in a minute? Before I before we do, I just I do need to remind people that this podcast, along with Audible and Ricochet.com, is brought to you by Hillsdale College's online course, Constitution 201. And we're talking about November and the election and what's really on the ballot this November. It's simple. Choosing between the progressive agenda or the United States Constitution. And you hear the term progressive all the time, but you know what it really means. The early progressives openly rejected the principles of the U.S. Constitution, and now we see it all around us in 2012. Universal health care, EPA, political correctness, that's the modern progressive agenda. And that's why Hillsdale College, the authority on the Constitution, is offering a brand new free online course on the threat of the progressive movement and what constitutes constitutional conservatives must do to restore liberty and limited government. So go to hillsdale.edu, that's hillsdale, H-I-L-L-S-D-A-L-E dot E-D-U, and then click on Constitution 201. That's the banner on the right side of the page, and do that right now and sign up for this free course. Today's progressives endanger everything we hold dear, so go to hillsdale.edu, then click on Constitution 201 on the right side of the page and sign up for the free course. And once you're registered, you can watch the 40-minute video classes at your leisure, but you have to sign up now because maybe you're one of the nearly 300,000 folks who signed up for Hillsdale's outstanding Constitution 101 class earlier this year. But if you're not, you can still take that course too. To learn about the Constitution and the powerful progressive force that threatens our liberty and that of future generations, sign up for free today. Go to hillsdale.edu, then click on Constitution 201, which is the banner on the right side of the page, and all the information on all the courses and access to the very best teaching on the Constitution, once again, for free. Do it now. That's pretty good. Pretty good voiceover, don't you think? I'm not Rush, but I think that's pretty good. 
Wow, I'm I'm moved. So Hillsdale does. I didn't even know that Hillsdale does this thing for free. That's kind of cool. It's amazing. Oh yeah, it's, it's really popular. It's amazing. It's amazing to get to get to get such wisdom for nothing. <laughs> yeah. I don't, don't mean that ironically. <laughs> Sorry, that didn't sound right. <laughs> it did actually. It sounded exactly. It, like- is a, it is a. It is a. It is a real gift. The people at Hillsdale. There are some of the some of the finest scholars uh, in America, and the more unconventional thinkers in academia. More, more unconventional and deepest thinkers in academia and if you can get some of their wisdom without having to go to central michigan that's a real that's a real <laughs> you know paul ray told a story once uh and paul's a great contributor to ricochet and he's, he writes really beautifully for us and 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 uh, interacts with the members really well and, and he's a uh, professor at hillsdale and he's professor at hillsdale and he uh he told a story that he, he he posted something on ricochet i don't know you know six months ago nine months ago and and rush limbaugh was reading it out loud on his on his uh show but Paul had been doing something in the morning, and he was walking, walking through the faculty lounge for lunch. And he said the whole, all the faculty turned to me, and they said, Paul, Rush is reading your Ricochet piece. And I remember thinking, what kind of college or university is it where you walk through the faculty lounge, and everyone is telling you what Rush Limbaugh is saying? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a bizarro land university where they, uh, they, they, all the faculty, the, the, not just the math and science faculty, but everybody, the French department is listening to Rush in between classes. So I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I commend them. Um, all right. Is it a wave, Jonah? Is it, is it going to be a wave in November? <laughs> I, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I, but I've been saying this for a long time. It's 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 a fascinating thing is that Romney could in it's very possible, if not probable, you know, that Romney comes up a little short and loses, you know, forty nine point nine to fifty point one or something like that. Or if he wins, he wins by five, six points, because for exactly the reason that John is saying is that whatever flips or whatever political psychology and momentum flips Ohio is going to flip Wisconsin is going to flip a whole bunch of other places. And so if, <clears throat> if Romney gets over that threshold, he may just keep going, you know, I mean, just run straight past the finish line. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I, right now I, I think it's tied obviously. Um, but I think that there's a non-trivial chance that if Romney wins, he wins big. Yeah, I don't know if there's going to be a wave either. My, I think I think Jonah's right that 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 if the president prevails, every indication that we have is the president will prevail using an electoral map strategy in which he will sort of take, you know, he'll take Ohio and one other state that Romney needs, and then he'll win, you know, 286 electoral votes or something, rather like Bush in 2004. Um, because he's reached, I think, a ceiling. You know, people know who he is. If he if he hits fifty, he wins, and he can't get much higher than fifty. But people don't know Romney, and they're they're getting to know Romney. The signs are that they're liking what they see. That's what's interesting. Right. Um, and so, you know, in his case. Uh, he will if he convinces people he has more of a likelihood of convincing people than the president does for obvious reasons the president opinions of the president are much more fixed so people may default to the president because they don't trust romney that is what romney did in the debate now he can lose it by being catastrophic in the next two mm-hmm. but the thing is 
that's why people say he needed to show that he was a credible alternative. What that means is that if people saying, well, all right, I mean, I, this other guy, I really just can't go for him. No one is going to say that if they're really on the fence. If they're really genuinely on the fence, they're going to have to make a positive choice for the president because Romney did not do enough to make himself appear to be the monster that Obama has been painting him as. Right, right. I mean, doesn't it? I mean, I don't. I mean, w- w- everything processes so fast now, um, and I think John has a good point that w- <laughs> we have discovered that we are a European democracy, and the, uh, the these campaigns really are only valuable and only make any any sense in the last six weeks anyway. But doesn't doesn't it have to get nasty? I mean, it's already kind of gotten been a little bit nasty, and then it kind of backed off. Doesn't it have to get? I mean, if you're Obama, you're sitting there. You got two weeks left. Don't you have to go really dirty? I suppose, but the question is how and with what and in a way that doesn't boomerang. And that's where it gets tricky because ordinarily you want the last couple of weeks of a campaign to be positive, not negative. The famous thing is that the closing of a campaign is positive. Your commercials are positive. You make a personal statement. You make a speech that tells people how wonderful you are and how much you care about them. Because you want people to go into the voting booth with a positive feeling about you, not a negative one. If you go negative late, this is sort of standard political science ideas, you you, you run the risk of having people say, well, he looks desperate or that's not really nice. That's not not the guy I want. So it would be very, very risky and Democrats genuinely, generally, I think, expect the media to do some of that dirty work uh, for them and Mm – you know, the real question now is, was the 47% tape, was that, was that the, you know, last bomb? Was it, did they let the bomb off too early or is there more somewhere? Um, but even so, you know, it's late, you know, the late hit of the, the great late hit, which was uh, the release of, of, of George Bush's DUI uh, in, in 2000, you know, from 24 years earlier, which according to some data, cost him 2 million votes and therefore, you know, basically cost him the popular vote in the election. Um, you know, is it likely that there is any such thing about Romney? No. Um, and so, I, you know, it's a very tricky thing. And right now what we're talking about is the president's misbehavior as president in Libya and changing from that subject off to something about what Obama did somewhere 10 years ago is going to be a little harder than it would have been three weeks ago if Libya hadn't blown up. Right. And also, again, doing these things, being nasty from behind has a real or from the perception of being behind has a real potential of seeming like a desperation play and unpresidential um, in a way that doing this stuff to, you know, to put away your opponent when you're ahead doesn't um so i mean i i, I think that that there there's a real there's, there's a real momentum problem for obama that he um he's gonna have a very hard time reversing um and i don't know how he does it in the next debate and i don't know how you know the, the debate on october 22nd the foreign policy debate has the potential of being the most boring um but also has the potential for being the most, you know, having the most fireworks. And if he doesn't have good answers by then, 
he's in real trouble. I mean, I, you wouldn't you wouldn't want this Benghazi thing to get any more ugly than it already is. Uh, you know, less than a couple of weeks out from the election, and if he doesn't have good answers by then, it, 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 it's it, it, it's it's an ugly spectacle for him. By the way, not not also to like be you know some kind of sunbeam about all this, but. Rob, you said that you know uh, town halls are, are traditionally really bad for Republicans. Well, you know, one of the reasons that Republicans have now spent 20 years doing town halls is precisely that they did not want to find themselves in the position that George H.W. Bush found himself in in the first town hall debate when he faced that guy with the ponytail who said, you know, will you kiss me and cuddle me and tell like, me that everything father. is going to be all right? Fathers. Um, they know how to talk that way. Romney's probably done 872 town halls by now. I saw him do one, you know, I saw him do one the other day. Now, granted, they're friendly or they're friendly audiences. He doesn't really have hostile questions. But, you know, the town hall uh, helped get the Tea Party elected. I mean, don't don't uh, don't underestimate the degree to which. Guys like a guy like Romney has gotten himself comfortable in a more casual setting, speaking more casually and doing the "Yes, I care about you." Yes, I feel for you. The president, who has been president for four years, is much less conversant with that form than Romney is, and has done it much less recently. As we saw, even in the debate, you know, Romney had done twenty debates in the last year and a half. I think it helped him a lot, and and uh, the president, you know. President hadn't debated anybody except for the you know congressional Republicans at uh, well, at, presum- at Camp David, where he where he behaved really badly. Presumably, he's debate been debating his harshest critic. She's right next to him all the time. <laughs> <laughs> remember, remember. <laughs> I don't well, think well, those well, are those aren't guys? debates, my friend. Those aren't <laughs> debates. Those are those are lemon sessions. Those are uh, re-education <laughs> sessions. But well, if, one of you guys, please explain to me in a convincing way how it is we're supposed to lose this. How? How? Well, it's yeah. very simple. Uh, the the Democratic uh, mechanics of the Democratic uh, electoral machine uh, work brilliantly. Um, they have an incredible get out the vote operation. Uh, they do it. The unions do it. They 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 didn't. They, this 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 would be the scenario. They did an unbelievable job getting early voting. Uh, they get people to the polls on election day. Um, and they just swamp uh, whatever move there is to Romney in the two or three critical states, uh, meaning uh, largely Ohio, um, maybe New Hampshire, uh, maybe Virginia, uh, although Virginia now appears possibly to have, have gone out of reach um, for the president. Um, and he gets to 286 or 275 or whatever the number is. Um, and that's how he does it. He does it through mechanics. All right, that, Jonah. It, well, there's also the, the, the very real possibility that there's, as John was talking about in the sort of the DUI model, that they come up with a – they leak to the press a story that Mitt Romney had caffeinated tea in his teen years. And um, <laughs> look, I um, um, yeah, I, I, think it's, I, I think that's basically it is, is that, that Obama lose, Obama wins by mounting up this big ground game. And um, and by the simple fact that Mitt Romney is not all of that appealing, you know, it'd be very it's very interesting to think, you know, because if you, you, if you talk to people who really love Mitt Romney and work with him for years, 
it wasn't until basically maybe sort of his convention speech, but really his debate performance that they said, see, that's the Mitt Romney I've been telling you about. And it's kind of interesting to think, what if Mitt Romney had been that Mitt Romney all along? You know, because uh, the the conventional wisdom is that that Republicans needed a wonky, budget-oriented, serious guy this time around to deal with the problems that we have. And I think I think if Mitch Daniels had become the nominee, he might be doing a lot better than Mitt Romney. Uh, you know, Mitt, uh, Mitch Daniels knows how to eat a corn dog at the county fair. Now I know Mitch Daniels has problems with his, you know, his wife and and that story and all the rest. But the thing is that Mitt Romney's personal problems, as in terms of his personality, I think have been holding him back a few points. Um, and I, I think that at the end of the day, people don't. There's something about Mitt Romney that a lot of people don't like. The good news was that the first time they had any serious exposure to him, that Mitt Romney didn't show up. And um, if that Mitt Romney shows up in the final two debates, I think people will say, oh, that was a fluke. He was just really well rehearsed. And um, I like this other guy more. And I'm going to go with the devil I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the story of 2004, though – was that uh, Karl Rove built this astonishing electoral machine, a get-out-the-vote machine that increased Bush's vote by 22% over 2000. Think about that, 22%. That was a remarkable right. achievement. He did things no one had ever done before. The, the thing, and, then, and then basically Democrats adapted his methods and got their vote up in 2006 and 2008, and presumably everybody's doing it um, is is doing it this time as well. The difference is that in 2004, and it's important to remember this, uh, President Bush not only had an unemployment rate of 5.4% and an economy that was growing at 3.5%, but there was a major issue, and the issue was the war in Iraq and the war, uh, and the war on terror sort of connected to the war in Iraq. And he fought much of the last two months of the campaign making the case for the war in such a way that the support for the war, which was at about 45% in August, went up to 52 53% by election day, and he won 51% of the vote. He rallied people to his side. It wasn't just that they had an electoral machine and that there was a kind of entropy. There was a fight on one very specific thing that had divided the country. And Bush, people sort of forget this because Iraq got to be so unpopular, but people, Bush made Americans who had liked the war like it again before they voted. And that is what's missing for President Obama. He can... You know, if if the jobs report, the September jobs report that came out in October had shown 300,000 jobs created, he could have said, boy, look, here we are. Things have really turned around and I did this and you're going to have to like me. Instead, there were 113,000 jobs and a phony drop in unemployment number and he doesn't have anything to go back to the American people with. And that's a real problem between now and the election. What is he running on? Yeah, and the, the, the other what thing to keep on, on the other thing to keep in mind is uh, sort of a 
a, it's a dark thing to be ha- to see as a as a bright spot. But if that jobs report was as flawed as people are saying, um, you know, if it was such a statistical anomaly, the one that brought us down under under eight percent, um, that's going to get wildly corrected in the next jobs report, which will come out just a couple days before election day. And if it goes back up above 8%, that is a deadly headline um, to have, you know, a couple of days before election yeah. day. And uh, yeah. my guess is that that's what's going to happen. So, but as I so, say, so, I, I think in the end, he's saved by mechanics and he's defeated by, by reality, you know? Uh, and, you know, the reality is that Romney wasn't the, wasn't the horror show that he portrayed him as. And, and the country is in bad shape. And and our foreign policy is in bad shape and our economy is in bad shape. And, you know, he can't convince people that the economy is in good shape. And I don't know what on earth he says to say that the, our foreign policy is in good shape. You know, uh, what happened in Benghazi, I think, has neutralized whatever positive bump you get from having killed bin Laden 18 months ago mm-hmm, mm-hmm. politically. In other words, he, that's, that, that was already – that was already factored in his support. But, I mean, he can't walk around and say, I killed bin Laden, I killed bin Laden, I killed bin Laden. And they're like, yeah, you killed bin Laden and Al-Qaeda just killed our ambassador. Where were you after, after they right. killed bin Laden? <laughs> right, right. I mean, I'm just saying, like, that, that. I'm not even arguing that that would be a fair criticism, but it's what would come into somebody's head. You know, he's yeah, not but- responsible for the fact that Chris Stevens was targeted and killed by Al-Qaeda. But he is responsible for taking a victory lap before the victory was won. Exactly. There are still men on the field and he's spiking the ball. Um, all right. So uh, can, we, can we be a little, um, a little uh, less thoughtful and a little bit more gutsy? I mean, uh, well, let's, let's make a couple bets here. Um, you know, 50 bucks a piece. We'll put it in the pot. You want to you wanna make a prediction? Whoever gets closest gets the money. Uh, hmm. I've been predicting. I've been predicting since June that Obama would lose. So I will. I will go. I'll go fifty-two forty-eight, Romney. Fifty-two um, forty-eight, Romney. Okay. Yes. So you're you're going for for you know that's a very decisive win. Well, like I said, I think if he wins, as jo- I sort of follow Jonas Jonas strategy, which is if he wins, what we're seeing here is a meltdown. Right. And so if I take the logic, which is I believe what we're seeing is real, and, you know, given, given all the provisos, which is that, you know, they could have bad debates and, you know, suddenly there could be a million jobs created this month and various other things. But, you know, knowing what we know now, I would say it's 52-48. And I would say he does – and he wins Ohio and, you know, and he wins Virginia and he wins Florida and he, and, and he wins North Carolina and he wins Indiana and that wins the election for him. And he wins New Hampshire, which is also apparently now five points in his direction. Jonah? Yeah, um, I, I might have taken 52-48, but I'll take 51-49, um, but with an outsized uh, win in the Electoral College. I don't know what that number is. I'd have to look at the math, you know, but um, huh. a decisive – not quite landslide in the Electoral College, but, a, you know, a decisive win in the Electoral College. So now you have to vote against, you know. 
Yeah, against, I mean, against Romney. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I do because I, I, I don't know whether my heart's in it anymore. I don't know whether my heart is the true pessimist I used to be. Uh, I, I think I was visited by three ghosts last night, um, or one ghost uh, in the form of of, of Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> but all right, I, I will take the other side of it just because I, I, because uh, someone's got to. I will say it's going to be a squeaker, but, um, but Obama will will be back in. But a squeaker, it'll be tight. Well, that's right. that is that's the other side of it. Yeah. So God, how deflating though. Doesn't sound <laughs> doesn't sound very. No, I know. I, I don't like making these bets either, just because it's there's something, something yeah. binding about it. That, that yeah. It I do want to tell you guys though. <laughs> I want to tell you that in 1994, uh, there were uh, the late Robert Novak used to do a pool. Uh, had a pool of sixty pundits or something. Had a lunch on election day. Uh, with predictions, and I uh, I won the pool. Uh, you did on the midterms, yes. On the midterms, all right. And I that. got like three hundred dollars off of uh, Fred Barnes and um, you know Gigi Geyer and other other notables. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Gigi Geyer. That, that that money must have spent beautifully. Um, I will only t- I will leave us with this one story. Um, I was uh, in 1993 in January. The National Review Institute had a, con- a little con- conference in D.C. It was a couple of weeks before the Clinton, first Clinton inaugural, and I'm walking down um, the lobby at the I think it was the Mayflower they had it, um, and um, this guy, this strange guy, pulls me aside and says, "Hey, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, we're gonna take back the house this year, uh, next year." And he laid out this plan. This little weird-looking guy with silver hair, who was a congressman from Georgia, and he kept and he handed me his card. It was Newt Gingrich, who, uh, who I'd never met before, who insisted that we were going to win that the Republicans were going to win the house in 1994. And I remember like nodding and smiling, and then walking away from this guy and thinking, "Oh man, we're so doomed. If he's the guy who's, who's if he's our chief strategist, <laughs> we are so dead." Uh, so um, I am the opposite of John Podoritz winning the pool. I am always wrong. So well, in, with in that. fairness, in the same sentence he said about winning back the Congress, he also talked about a colony on the moon, which <laughs> yeah, might have biased right. you against it. <laughs> yeah, the kind of colony on the moon run entirely by dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, listen, fellas, this was fun. We got to do it again. Uh, we we uh, we uh, as usual, we talk too much, um, but hell, it's free. So if they, if they want less, they can uh, they can pay us more. Um. Uh, any uh, Jonah, are you going to be anywhere? You want to um, ship any of your upcoming appearances? I'm, I have uh, an event. I think um, at Delta College on the sixteenth, and at UVA on the seventeenth. Where's Delta College? Is that that in the Mississippi Delta? Uh, no, it's in Michigan. I hope. I hope I have that right. Otherwise, I've just insulted. Are you them. sure that's not Faber College? <laughs> and you're going to Delta House because I'm a little. Uh, I just wanted uh, to make sure. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure. Okay. Hey, John, are you going anywhere? Uh, let's see. I'm going to the theater <laughs> tonight. I will be seeing Once the Musical, uh, and uh, I will be attending my nephew's wedding on Sunday. Okay. Uh, and uh, I will be uh, trapped in front of TVs watching uh, debates and writing columns and tweeting like a psychotic. So, but at least you're home with your uh, your harshest critic. That's with, I'm I'm home with my harshest <laughs> critic, my 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 six year old, my six year old who happily tells me that I'm really really stupid whenever I don't <laughs> let her have ice cream. Yeah, well, that is stupid. Um, all right, fellas, it was good to talk to you. Talk to you soon. All right, guys. 
Take care. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. As I walk down the street, seems everyone I meet gives me a friendly hello. I guess I'm just a lucky so-and-so. in every tree are all so neighborly they sing wherever I go I guess I'm just a lucky so and so if you should ask me the amount in my bank account I'd have to confess that I'm slipping but that don't worry me confidentially I've got a dream yeah that's a pippin and when the day is through Each night I hurry to A home where love waits I know Moving I guess I'm Just a lucky soul And so Ricochet Join the conversation